When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. It's a podcast about work, psychology, and life. Hello, thank you for joining us. I've got a, uh, a lovely episode lined up for you today. Before that, I just thought I'd uh, give a f- couple of call-outs to some of the things that you might not have, have been aware of. Um, just a reminder that if you are interested in workplace culture and making work better, then the newsletter is a great place to start. You'll see the link of that to the at the top of the show notes. And this week's newsletter includes... A link to the video of a session I did at the RSA last week, um, which was about resilience and fortitude and and what we can understand about it, and got a lovely response. There was some um, there were some really good responses from people in the room, and and uh, I stayed along and, and had a chat afterwards. So if you're interested in that, by all means, uh, join in and take a look there on the newsletter. Today's episode is a conversation between myself and Rory Sutherland. Now, Rory is an icon of the marketing world. He's a, a TED Talk specialist. He's he's done the the main TED conference. And Rory's day job is the vice chair of the Ogilvy Group. In fact, he's famous for far more than that. He's famous for his erudite and really thoughtful contributions on the role of marketing, the role of of behavioural economics. He's really sort of championed the behavioural economics agenda. And he's a brilliantly thoughtful contributor to, to all manner of things. He's a regular writer for The Spectator along the way. We talk about uh, my book, Fortitude, and why we get resilience wrong. So it's worth flagging right up front that uh, Rory's in the interviewing seat. He's interviewing me. So if you're here, just to hear examples of of Rory's sparkling wit and brains, um, then to some extent, he, he uses them as conversational starters and and interjections, but um, it's not me asking Rory questions. So just flagging that right at the outset. It's uh, it's Rory asking me about my book. And, you know, along the way, he quotes Bob Dylan lyrics. He, you know, mentions the challenges of living in Cornwall. It's all a very entertaining and interesting discussion. The the talk was put on by a group called Radix Big Tent. And Radix Big Tent is a platform for non-partisan conversations about big policy issues. Uh, I've attended their big tent event down in Bristol and in that you'd, you'll find uh, local councillors, MPs, businesses all sort of wrestling with themes of how to give a voice to people and how to bring places to life. And the intention of Radix Big Tent is that it provokes and promotes new conversations about regeneration, about renewal of society, 
but all in the context of doing it in a non-partisan way. So if you are interested in doing something, but don't necessarily feel yourself needing to be adherent to party politics, you might be intrigued with them. And, and I definitely recommend you check out the link. It's at the top of the show notes. Um, they put together summits, festivals, events, both online and in real life. And they're all around the country. The intention really is to engage local leaders and ordinary people, bringing them into contact with policymakers and influencers. So I was thrilled that they contacted me, asking me to put on this event. And Rory's worked with them before. Um, so in aggregate, Firstly, it was, a, it was a great opportunity to have a conversation with Rory to pick the themes of Fortitude apart. And secondly, I was thrilled that Radix Big Ten got involved. So with no further ado, let me jump in. Here's my conversation with Rory Sutherland talking about my new book, Fortitude. Fantastic. So I have to start with the obvious question, I suppose, which is what was it that made you write, having written about the future of work... Uh, which is, I'm sure is a topic that will crop up uh, both now and later. Uh, what made you, when approaching your difficult second album, what made you choose fortitude and resilience as the topic uh, to write about? Was it particularly that you'd become annoyed with what was essentially um, uh, implicitly something which sounded rather wonderful and worthy and helpful, but was in effect blaming people for failings which had originated somewhere else? Yeah, and specifically, I think, the moment you... It's, it's a bit like when you hear pregnant women say that the moment they become pregnant, they see pregnant women everywhere they go. They're sort of The awareness of it suddenly uh, sort of triggers them. And I, the moment I started thinking about resilience, I just noticed it, we were surrounded with yeah. it. You hear it, you know, if you listen to the Today programme, you'll hear adjacent packages talking about resilience. You'll see articles in newspapers. And I... There was a specific moment where I was already interested in the themes of resilience and then um, I found myself in Beirut and my partner's Lebanese and there was this phenomenal, vast explosion, sort of the, I think the biggest peacetime explosion in any city. Um, the, the city was decimated and the economy was already... Yeah, destitute. tanking, yeah. Absolutely. The, you know, if, if you go to Beirut now, you'll pay for meals with a wad of notes that'll take yeah. you 10 minutes to count out. Um, and the word was there again. The word featured in all of the coverage. The BBC said, we know the Lebanese are resilient people. The New York Times said, if we know anything, the Lebanese are resilient. It's like, wow, that word again. And so I was just struck by the fact that it's become the, the go-to invocation, the, the go-to demand. And, you know, you, you start delving further. You, I, I've spent a couple of evenings looking at the websites for schools, and it's very difficult to find schools that don't talk about resilience and growth mindset. You know, these terms that seem to just appear everywhere and appear almost like magic demands that we're, we're meant to summon these things and all of our problems will go away. So I became, I just became acutely aware of how ubiquitous the term is. And, and look, you know, we're confounded with the opposite, the, the opposite challenge that we hear the term everywhere and yet we're reminded all the time of how unresilient we feel, that you know, we're, we're told that generations are snowflake generations or that there's an absence of resilience in the workplace. So it just seemed like this interesting juxtaposition that we are hearing more resilience talk than ever before, yeah. and yet there seems to be a greater case for it than ever. 
So, I mean, the book starts particularly talking about sort of sporting stories, and you think there is some statistical case to be made for the fact that uh, super-performing sports people are often the products of some particular trauma or unpleasant incident earlier in life. Is that fair? I, I was... I was really struck by the degree of misdirection that we often end up with, with sporting narratives, mm. that we see someone who's got a tortured childhood and we think there's a teachable lesson from it. And specifically, I go into, you know, there is some really fascinating research. The, um, there were a couple of sports scientists who were commissioned by UK Sport. UK Sport's just around the corner. And UK Sport, as the investment was going up in, in Team GB, putting people at the Olympics, they commissioned a piece of work and it's a mind-blowing piece of work because they, they studied um, British Olympians to try and understand if there was any DNA, anything that, that identified elite performers. And there's a remarkable thing that comes out of their research. These two researchers, Lou Hardy and Tim Rees, and um, they study... Uh, super elite British Olympians. So they say these are household names. They're anonymized in the report, but they say they are household names. And they compare them to um, an equal number of control athletes. So these were athletes that had the same investment in them, possibly went to games, but didn't win prizes or won, um, or won at best bronze medals. And the big thing that differentiates them is that without exception, all of the super elite athletes, the gold medal winners, all reported a significant moment of childhood trauma. And you know, if you see, and, and of the non-gold winning athletes, only about a quarter of them did. And so, you know, the reason why I confronted it head on is because other, left unchecked, it might be such an easy story for a book to tell you that these, you know, there's a story in from tragedy comes triumph, that there's yeah. a story for us to understand. And my view is, firstly, it's a lot more compli complicated than that. And, you know, if we're, if we're not careful, we can end up going down a cul-de-sac of misdirection. You could very easily see a book that propagates this article, that, that there is something superpowers that is, is generated from a moment of trauma. And I wanted to address it really specifically. You know, but even though that work is anonymized, we can see in the biographies of some of the best known athletes in the UK. You know, one of the things that I found, I, I was sort of went through a lot of biographies of athletes and Mo Farah's biography was a real enigma. It yeah. was a real enigma because he just seemed like a, a successful immigrant kid who'd come to the UK. And, you know, now we see latterly in the last couple of months that he was a victim of human trafficking and child slavery. But his experience is not alone. You, you know, uh, major British high-performance athletes, <coughs> Kelly Holmes was in an orphan, uh, a children's home right, and was yeah. subjected to an immense amount of bully, bullying. Uh, Andy Murray, probably the most successful British... With Dunblane. Dunblane, victim of the Dunblane school shooting. Um, Tom Daly, his father died. And, and, and. You know, we see these things repeatedly. And um, I think John Paul Sartre said, the best thing that a father can do for his son is to die early. And so, you know, we, we see these... We see these sort of remarkable stories, but... There's, there's a possible danger here, isn't there, statistically, which is it may be that having an early trauma or problem simply massively increases the variance of outcome. You know, a few people are more likely to become spectacularly successful, but an invisible but much greater number of people actually, of course, are significantly damaged for the rest of their lives. Precisely so, that. I mean, if you look at it statistically, it's very interesting. Because both Bill Gates and... Um, uh, 
Alex Zuckerberg, okay. both dropped out of Harvard, okay? Now, as a result of that, you can say, I think, really confidently, that on average, Harvard dropouts are inordinately richer than people who actually get a degree. <laughs> What that hides is the fact that a hell of a lot of people who drop out of Harvard are never heard from again and end up in a crack den or whatever, okay? Yeah. But, so it could be one of those cases where exceptional events undoubtedly lead to exceptional outcomes. They're mostly negative, but of course no one writes, you know, full pages in the, uh, in the Observer about people who just dropped out of school yeah. because, they, because they were abused and then, you know, ended up in appalling straits. So, so there's two things, two teachable lessons. The first thing is if you go into childhood trauma, there's been wonderful work in the last 15, 20 years really cataloguing specifically what the outcome of childhood trauma is. And the, the work in the US that's really popularised this is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Index, yeah. which is a very simple way to almost a checklist to say, um, certainly as a research tool, it's quite helpful. It's quite clever too, because as you said, you don't, you simply, you, you simply tot up your own score. Exactly that. Which doesn't, which then gives you a degree of anonymity. You don't have to reveal what the trauma was. You simply have to reveal what your score is. Precisely is that. Clever. So, you yeah. know, this, this list, which is, you know, as a child before the age of 18, were you subject to emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse? And it goes through a list of 10 things. And what you find is an A score of four, um, and I've got an A score of four, uh, an A score of four um, correlates with... Uh, doubling of the rate of cancer, doubling of the rate of heart disease, 33 times increase in educational difficulties. It, yeah. It's the toll of trauma. While we might see those isolated Olympians that have yeah. achieved something remarkable, that is not the story of trauma. But what you certainly see in the biography of those people who were simultaneously blessed with uh, an elite, a super elite ability, yeah. and they had this horrific experience is generally they become, their lives become distended and, and become obsessively focused in the redemptive power of, of identity. So Kelly Holmes says sport became her identity. Yes. Um, you know, you, you see other episodes, I have no doubt that Mo Farah became obsessive and fanatical and fo incredibly focused in the redemptive power of him revive identity revitalization and and it's just a really instructive uh, lesson i think to understand firstly the the incredible forces at work and to try to demystify the the notion that you, there's not a straight line there's not a linear connection between the things it's very interesting isn't it i mean that, I, I mean that when you think once you explain it like that that now seems actually quite self-evident but most people don't think of it in that way i mean i remember uh, you know, I remember w watching the Olympics and every single uh, story, you had to have someone wrestling with adversity before they're allowed to succeed. And I was, I mean, there may be some, as you said, there may be some basis for this. I was a bit uncomfortable because it looked a bit to me like sort of narrative meritocracy. Mm. You can't say this person's won a gold medal because their parents were rich enough to own a tennis court. Okay, because that's not a good American story, because it suggests that success may be down to luck or uh, circumstances. Whereas the narrative of overcoming adversity always plays well, particularly in the US, I think, doesn't it? But there's an interesting thing as well. Yeah. I found myself chatting to um, a, a doctor, a Canadian doctor, a guy called Kyle Ganson. And Kyle Ganson focuses on how 
One of the consequences of childhood trauma is often a degree of self-editing. Again, the focus on identity and the redemptive power of sort of identity revitalization. And he said, in the same way that we can explain about um, 50 to 60% of addiction through trauma, about 80% of adult violence through trauma, uh, in the same way, he found that a high degree of people who have... Um, eating disorders or f food consumption disorders is focused on uh, um, trauma. So specifically, he said to me, a, 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 male, male athlete, a male individual who's experienced sexual abuse uh, is nine times more likely to take performance-enhancing drugs. Really? And a person who's experienced physical abuse is five times more likely. And these, are, these things are multiplicative. So of course. effectively... Now, now, actually, that really helps you get into an uncomfortable truth about all of that research. So if the uncomfortable truth is that we often say to ourselves, what is the performance-enhancing drug mentality of sports people? Why would anyone do something which is so clearly against the spirit of sport? And if you then rewind the clock, and you can see this in the, um, in the case of Marion Jones. Marion Jones was the poster child for American sport, front page of, of every magazine. She was a, a really high performer. She was, I think, at the Sydney Games, she won three, two or three golds. She was destined to win the same at, at Greece. And uh, she, was, she was outed as a, a drug cheat. Well, if you look into her, uh, her childhood experience, her father abandoned her. Then the person who became her adoptive father passed away when she was 12. And so... What you often find in that instance is we might look at her story and go, why on earth would someone mm. who has an elite talent take drugs? And what Kyle Ganson found was there is something in the biographies of these people that might at least help us view that with a degree more sympathy, that it's, it's effectively a, a redemption. And does age of trauma really matter? Uh, in a sense, or...? Um, I mean, it all varies. One thing you'll find about the, the ACE methodology is that it's an imprecise yeah. means of doing it. So the ACE, me ACE methodology is often criticised because it's all about things that you have had at home. If you live with someone who went to jail, if you live with someone that, with addiction problems, it, they, they are all domestic, and there are elements that aren't categorised by that. Experiencing racist abuse is regarded as maybe External an ace equivalent. External because it's outside yeah. the home, I yeah, see. Yeah, or bullying that's an ace equivalent. So I think it gives us a good pointer, um, but it, it doesn't necessarily write the full story. What, I mean, taking this to, say, the workplace, what practical prescriptions would you see, both for individuals and for government, yes. emerging from the work you've done? I guess you know we've we've gone down the sort of the uh, the route of looking at identity and how how important identity is for a sense of resilience. Um, but actually, probably the vast majority of the work is a focus, a, a sort of reevaluation of what resilience looks like. For me, resilience is the strength we gain from each other. So resilience is a collective strength, and, and especially in an environment where work is very individualistic, mm. the way that we teach. Resilience is very individualistic. The notion that some of us are more resilient than others or that we've got an on switch or an off switch for resilience is often unhelpful and misleading. You know, the, I spoke to a number of people while I was doing this and, and chatted to people and said, uh, I'm writing a book about resilience. 
And, and it, this is in an era of COVID where you're only seeing people every three months. And uh, more than once, someone rolled their eyes and said, no, I'm so fed up of hearing about resilience. So, it's, you know, now I go back to another three-month lockdown and, and, uh, and, and continue my work. But broadly, the truth of it is, is resilience is the strength we draw from each other. And specific, I'll give you specific examples. Yeah. Um, you know, let's look at the people in Ukraine where we're so, we, we see these stories of just immense bravery, almost incomprehensible levels of, of bravery. And we, we find ourselves, certainly I find myself thinking, I'm not sure I could ever be capable of that. And yet, if we view it through the prism of resilience is the strength we imbue in each other, resilience is like feeling like we're all in this together, then you start understanding it. Or there's a rem remarkable social scientist called Enrico Quarantelli, and he ended up working for the US government. And he was obsessed with natural disasters. He was the, the lone car driving into the epicenter of an earthquake. Uh, he was the, the, the lone person who would be heading towards uh, New York on September the 11th, um, trying to understand what went on. And he said, what became very clear, he, he set about trying to explore mass panic in truth. He set about initially trying to see um, episodes of panic and, and how government could respond to it. And he said, you don't ever see mass panic in these episodes. What you see is because everyone's old identity has been swept away and it no longer matters if I'm a banker and you're a painter or you know, if I'm a teacher and, and you're a, a lorry driver, our identities have been swept away and we've got new identities that we're in this moment right now. And so firstly, you see remarkable stories. You see you know, religious barriers being overcome by these incredible acts of kindness of, of people reaching out to other communities. And it's broadly because in those instances, you see a very vivid example. Resilience is the strength we draw from each other. Now, if you think about an application for that, for you know, any of us in any situation, um, you might start saying, well, then, the more that people can feel like we're all the, in this together, we're all yeah. in a shared situation, then that might be a route to make people feel more resilient. And there's another example of it, a really interesting example of it. Go on. No, this really interests me. I always talk about the incredible distinction. It's a fairly trivial example. But if you're at home and your lights go out, okay, the first thing you do is go out onto the street and see, is this just my house? Right. Or is it the whole street? And the second it's the whole street, it actually becomes kind of fine. It's rather like, the, you know, the best thing a doctor can say to you is, there's a lot of it about. You know, the one, the one thing you don't want a doctor to say is, I've never seen anything like this before <laughs> in my whole professional life. And the, the different way we react to... Something similar, I think, happened because all the predictions were in 1939 that once bombing started in London, you'd have a complete breakdown, mass panic, civil disorder, the whole thing would collapse. And weirdly, nothing of the kind, as you Precisely. said, nothing of the kind happened. Because a shared problem is completely different in the way we respond to it, to a problem that lands on us individually, I Pre suppose. Yeah, precisely. And, and albeit that the testimonies of, of the time can be a, a degree rose-tinted when, yeah. when we read them. And there was a very weird finding, which, is that, um, which will worry the economist over there, which is that uh, immediately after the 2008 financial crash, levels of happiness in the United States went up. I don't know, go, you know, go figure. But the, the, something experienced... And you, you mentioned the fact that actually the people who are, for example, firemen or cops during 9-11, the level of PTSD diminished fairly rapidly. Absolutely. Because, again, it was for them it was a shared experience which they could share, 
whereas for people who experienced it individually, totally different. Yeah, the, probably one of the, the most widely read people in terms of trauma is a guy called Bessel van der Kolk, and he's written a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And he talks specifically about how trauma desynchronizes us. It unsynchronizes us from each other because the, the overwhelming experience of trauma is shame. And, oh. you know, so, and that might be a really hard thing to... If you look at some specific example, someone's been bereaved, why would they perceive that as shame? But, yeah. the, you know, it's the, the tricks that the mind plays on us. Um, and so those New York cops who'd experienced 9-11, because they were able to talk to each other and turn to each other and maybe sort of dwell in a way that we... They weren't desynchronised. That's right, they're right. Yeah. They, and so the, the reports of their experience was very different to the individuals who maybe experienced it alone, went back to their apartments, lost their jobs and went through it in isolation, really. Incredibly important question. I mean, there's a great quote in that, I don't know if anybody's a fan of the Bob Dylan song, um, Brownsville Girl. Uh, it's almost a completely obscure album, but he uses the phrase, isn't it strange how people who've suffered together have more in common than those who are most content? And he makes this, you know, this extraordinary point that in a sense, uh, as you said, sh shared, shared trauma actually removes barriers between people to an astonishing degree. No one cares who you know who you are anymore. And they, you know, in the same way that to some extent the pandemic created a level of fellow feeling in people mm. to an extent, which was lacking beforehand. Do you think? And I've got to ask you this as the former Twitter um, uh, panjandrum. You know, do you think that technology is to some extent atomizing us? That technologies which were designed to bring us together to synchronize us are actually having the opposite effect? And do you also think there's a problem possibly in the workplace where you mentioned the fact of autonomy being another major source of resilience? Mm. That um, that as increasingly jobs become more and more demarcated at the top and decisions become more and more concentrated at the top, and people have less and less discretion over what they do. You see that as a problem as well, possibly? Yeah, so a couple of things there. So the social media thing is far, it's complicated. I think probably yeah. most of us, through the pandemic, found ourselves initially against our, our desires, but being part of WhatsApp groups. Mm. And actually, there was some benefit yeah. in times of isolation, in, in getting to know your neighbours, name and getting to know people in in your environment so that sense that we're all in it together in fact you could probably analyze the the downfall of boris johnson in that when it looks like we're all in it together he's one of us yeah 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 um, and the moment you transition from being one of us to one of them that sort of pejorative that he's the outgroup person yeah he's the person doing it for himself that transition seems to be something that we really sort of feel visceral about Good organisation culture has something in common with resilience, that sense of we're all in it together, that sense of collectivism, um, rather than being fully atomised, that sense of you're part of something. Then, you know, the challenge for organisations is going forward, how do you make people feel part of something? Maybe they don't want to be part of something in the way that they were before. Maybe there's been a rebalancing of the way that they perceive their identity be being defined by their jobs that they don't have be, uh, in, the, in the same way that they had before. So I think there's definitely a rebalancing of how we, we think about all of these components and what we consider ourselves to be part of. It's also interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, if you look at the change in work patterns, it does seem to be very concentrated in very big cities. In other words, you know, you see an exodus from San Francisco, you see an exodus from New York. 
you don't really see an exodus from sort of, you know, St. Louis or the small, you know, mm. smaller places. And, I mean, I, I, it, it's always intriguing me as to what, what's driving that distinction. In the, is there something about megacities which makes them fundamentally different to, or lonelier, actually, or, um, than yeah. just very large places? Yeah. I mean, some of it's just practical, I guess, which is that, you know, if you want to work in Bristol and live in the countryside, it's not particularly burdensome to do so. Whereas London being so vast, you know, you've got to travel about 30 miles just to get out. And so, you know, part of it must be that. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. How, I mean, look, you know, the really interesting thing is that effectively the city represented a bundle, right? The city represented yeah. an aggregation of a lot of different things. And, and you know, you... you Effectively, one of the things that the city generally had going for it was that it was high density of well-paid jobs. Yeah. And so people would move to that environment because it effectively... Opportunity and well-paid salaries. Yeah, gave yeah. them a much better opportunity mm. to mm. do that. And that's the reducing, but I don't think we've seen the end of it. No. Certainly not at the beginning of people's working lives. No, no, most of If you think about it, I suppose, you know, your opportunity, your potential futures become fewer as you get older. Yeah. But at the very beginning, maximising that opportunity is... And dating, I guess. You know, I imagine Cornish Tinder gets a bit repetitive. You know, <laughs> you know I don't know. I mean... Um, uh, so, you know, there are multiple reasons why cities, particularly early yeah. in people's lives, play a particular role. Yeah. And the, all those gains to agglomeration you economists always like talking about. Um, but um, what, I mean, what, what would you say to employers now? Should you, should you basically just not use the word resilience? Or should you actually, first of all, start by looking at yourself and saying, what is it we're doing wrong <laughs> Uh, that uh, means we have to keep talking about resilience all the time. Yeah, well, firstly, I was really interested in the... Um, when employers are offering resilience courses, what on earth are they offering? You know, yeah. like... like what, and so what you find is, when you start delving into that, you start finding that these, these two or three things that broadly form the backbone of that resilience training, that, those resilience interventions. Um, most intriguingly, it's the stuff been used in American high schools and, you know, really given a proprietary name, ah. applied in high schools and used in the US Army. Uh, most tellingly, the, the guy responsible for most of it, Martin Seligman, was approached by, oh, course, yeah. by the US Army and uh, effectively, this one science writer presumes that there's been a, in excess of 500 million dollars in training people in this resilience training. But the intriguing thing about it is, similar to the work stuff that people do, um, you can look into the peer-reviewed papers of people taking the methodolo methodology and applying it, and it doesn't work. It, you know, emphatically, in the research, it definitely doesn't work. So then, you know, organisations who are doing resilience training, you've got to ask the question, why? Why? And, and surely, offering training that doesn't work is surely worse than offering nothing at all. Because, you know, if, if, you're, if you're telling someone, that you're offering someone something that's effectively a placebo um, and it has no impact whatsoever, long term that's going to be more injurious. I'll give you another example of how resilience is collectivist and, and it's about feeling connected to other people. Yeah. Um, probably the world's leading expert on teenage mental health is a woman called Jean Twenge. And she 
and look, she, te- she tells a pretty bad story. She tells a bad story specifically about mobile phones. Um, she, she tracks data. She wrote an article in The Atlantic about four or five years ago that really went, it went viral. It had sort of huge impact. That was called How Smartphones Destroyed a Generation. So she's unequivocal mm. about the harm that smartphones are doing. And she shows some really alarming charts. You know, the, the reason why that article, I think, caught hold is because there's four or five charts in it that are, like, falling off a cliff um, in terms of the, the impact. One of the things that she observed in the pandemic that was really interesting, she was convinced, I think, because it takes her a couple of years to get her full data set. And so, but they... By the end of two years of the pandemic, in the US, that was two years of home schooling for a lot of people. Um, By the the end of the pandemic, she was convinced, okay, we know what the story of the pandemic is. It's a mental health crisis. And what she found was that rewind the clock, her data was only for the first two or three months of the pandemic. Rewind the clock, the first two or three months of the pandemic. So we've got to remind ourselves that was the moment where someone was sent out foraging for pasta in the morning. And, you know, there was, you know, there was, there was someone given the responsibility for queuing for four toilet rolls. And we were, we were sort of, that early stage of the pandemic, children, teenagers who reported having a family meal every night, their resilience went up. Their depression went down. When people feel connected to each other, it does seem to be remarkably protective. So I think, you know, to, to go back to your question, what should really interesting. organizations think about? What should um, companies think about? Well, trying to get a sense that people feel some sense of connection to each other actually has got a social element to it. It's, you know, it has a societal impact. If people feel like the colleagues that they work with, they've got a human connection with them, it, it actually plays a really important part. I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with um, the people who run The Moth. I don't know if you know The mm. Moth, two stories told live. And they said, uh, they were telling me about how they run moth workshops for organisations. And I was thinking, okay, is this about um, presentation skills? Is this about sort of telling? And they said, no. no. They, they no, said, right, yeah. when someone has told the story of their life to another colleague, mm. they suddenly become flesh and blood. They suddenly become someone I feel invested in and care about. And so that skill of trying to share our stories to each other is just about forming a bond, a connection with other people, not about suddenly being better at PowerPoint. I was really struck by that. You know, that, that sense of connection is what makes us stronger. It's something that we really neglect. And it always struck me as odd that people who are very hostile to, say, remote and flexible working had nonetheless created through arguably open plan offices and too much technology had created a, a, a de-socialised office in the office. So you had all the, pro- all the hassle of commuting, and it wasn't as if when you got into the office it was a particularly sociable space because there was nowhere you could really go and chat, and it was, you know, basically a collection of people emailing people 10 feet away. <laughs> and so, I mean, we, we were talking just earlier yeah. about this business of Wednesday plus one, that the one thing an office needs to provide is one day where as far as possible you get everybody in, and as far as is possible, you make that day kind of screen-free and actually you said meeting-free as well, didn't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, in, I'm intrigued on your take on it as well. Yeah. I'm, in, I'm intrigued on, as everyone's trying to work this out, um, you know, I chatted to one organisation who said, look, our culture is Wednesday plus one, largely mm. to try and create a differentiation between 
what days of the week look like. And we're getting a little bit of that already. If you look at office usage, Mondays and Fridays seem to be significantly different to the rest of the yes, week. Yes, they are, yeah. In fact, yeah. Uh, Fridays are about a fifth, a fifth of the size of... Of Wednesdays, mm. so you know, if you've got any degree of it's autonomy, a fifth. yeah, honestly, it's, t- it's a tiny okay. number. If yeah. you've got any degree of autonomy, the first thing you do is ask not to work in the office on Friday. Fridays. Yeah. I think people are sort of far more willing to compromise on Monday, but Friday seems to be the day. And so, um, so days, whether we in, we recognise it or not, days are developing a different yeah. character to them, aren't they? You know, actually, yeah. in, increasingly, I suspect, if someone sends you a calendar invite for a big meeting on Friday afternoon, you'll feel affronted by it. You'll yeah. feel like, yeah. done. <laughs> oh, for God's sake, you know, yeah. What? Yeah. Uh, and actually, it's interesting, too, because uh, if, you know, if you go back to all those sort of uh, Taylorist experiments with worker productivity, which was manual worker productivity... I mean, although Taylor's rightly, I think, you know, derided and was a little bit of a fraud, it was nonetheless true that there were sensational increases in manufacturing productivity and the productivity of manual work, which were achieved in that period. But, of course, that involved a lot of experimentation. Now, the odd thing is, service industries and office work and knowledge work hasn't seen the same, Mm. even with IT, okay, even with billions spent on IT, has not seen significant productivity improvements. And it's worth asking the question why, and one of the answers to that is nobody experimented. Mm. And one of the things I discovered by accident, which is just a worthwhile tip to Nick, is particularly in the summer, if you work in the morning, take the afternoon off, and then work when it's dark in the evening, right? You still get a day's work done, but it feels like you're on holiday. It's a completely mysterious effect where essentially, you know, you feel completely relaxed and leisured and you've had fresh air and sunshine, but you've still done eight hours work or whatever it might be. And it does strike me as completely bizarre that whereas, you know, when it was manual work, you know, vast experiments Mm. were done on what combination of behaviours, what size of shovel was optimal, you know. Nothing was done with, with knowledge work at all. Yeah. It was just assumed you turned up, everybody worked as hard as they could or appeared to do so, and then they went home. And that was and we're still we're still really waiting to see yeah. that kind of productivity improvement, which given the expenditure on IT, we should have seen. There's that famous economist who said you can see IT spending everywhere except in the productivity figures. Yeah, it's really interesting as well. I don't think we've got the means of even discussing it. So if you were to move jobs now, um, the way that they would communicate their nuances of how they're working is quite laboured. It's sort of, it would be a difficult thing for you to know, is this negotiable? How many days do you need to be in the office? Is that subject to your boss's whim? I'm not sure we've we've worked the code to do it. Look, you know, the reason why I was struck by two things... Discussions about um, work right now, I think there's a growing recognition that if an office is going to work, it needs a degree of coordination. So I hear from so many people, they say, oh yeah, we're three days a week in the office, but you choose which days. So, okay, how does that work out? Yeah, great, I never meet anyone. And so, like, so, and then what generally happens from there is people say, no one seems to be keeping tabs. So uh, it's meant to be three, but I'm going in one day a week and being noisy when I'm there so people notice me. And, um, and what you recognise is, look, if I, the office is going to ha- work at all, it's got to have some degree of network effect to it. Yeah, And I so you need agree. to be coordinated. And so probably the answer is fewer days in the office, mm. 
but they are coordinated days, which goes against the spirit that a lot of people are feeling right now, that they want to be self-determining. But probably it's the only way to make the office stand for anything, I think. Yeah, and actually, of course, the nature of what the office is needs to change because I've always said, you know, there are people who are going into the office because they want solitude. You know, if you have a noisy home life, young children, mm. etc., there are people who go into the office to escape and there are people who go into the office for sociability. And what we created was this stupid halfway house of kind mm. of open plan offices or cubicles, which aren't really social spaces and they're not really solitude either. Yeah. And I think, I think you know, it's that, it's that attempt to solve for the average, which I think really failed in that case. And I think it's, it's quite interesting because, there, of course, there are different kinds of work and we probably instinctively know the environment in which we perform different functions. So if, my view is if you've got to write anything, you basically have to just lock yourself in a room. Mm. Now, there are people who are different. I'm sure there are people who can go and write 700 words while surrounded by other people. I couldn't do it. I'd have to go home, basically. If, you wanted to, if someone says, OK, I want you to write a 1,000 words about X, I go, that's fine, but I'm going home. I can't do it here. And we probably instinctively knew, but we weren't allowed to actually deploy that knowledge mm. because the rules were 9 to 5, in the office, visible, uh, regardless of, of the widely differing nature of what you're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, look, the experience of the office is still now that any time you go into a meeting room, there'll be generally someone sitting there who's mm. asking you if you got it booked because they're, yes. they're sort of trying to escape the they're noise escape, on the outside. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, you know, that's, that's the danger of the moment we're in, that we rose-tint what the office was about. And so that idea of at least electing that you've got different lanes for different things and making more intentional decisions, I think, is, is probably going to be the way that some firms differentiate. You see, you see the, the issues with firms who are mandating a three-day return is that workers are saying to them, I don't get why I'm coming in. You know, big organisations yeah. are in dispute, conflict with their employees because the employees are saying, I'm coming into the office to do video calls with people at home. Yeah. And this just doesn't make any sense. No. And so, you know, I think that's the challenge of the, <coughs> the moment we're in. It's this kind of lack of leadership, a lack of direction, because no one is making difficult calls um, that will hopefully get some, some dividend from the office. There's, um, there's a professor in the US at, at Stanford who's convinced the only answer is work from anywhere. Because he says that in the way that technology has advanced in the past, when people were allowed to use iPhones. Yes. Know, company policy was Nokia's, they used an iPhone, and Motorola, they used an iPhone, or they used their own laptops, or they, um, he says, the thing that always determines whether companies relax their policies is always the best, the most demanded workers, the, the sort of top talent. And so he said, top talent right now, the elite graduates coming out of top schools are saying, I want to work from anywhere. So he said, to some extent, that will determine what happens. So I don't think any organisation is planning It probably actually that. becomes a status marker, doesn't mm. it? Yeah. Which no, it no. never was before. So the extent to which you can say, well, I'm working from Ibiza this week, um, uh, you know, essentially becomes, you know, what, you know, what would have been salary in the 1980s or bonus in the mm. 1980s. To some extent, the mode in which you're allowed to work will actually signal how... Uh, how valuable a, an employer you, employee yeah. you are, um, which of course didn't happen when there was an absolute norm around times. Um, 
So it's, it's, it's very interesting. There's an interesting change happening as well, I think, is that the relationship with, that we've got with our jobs is transitioning from... Mm. It, it's actually remarkable when you look at it that our jobs infantilised us. Mm. You know, the, the notion that you had to be at a certain place at a certain time was something that we never had when we were at college. You, know, no, you, you were given a, a massive amount of autonomy at college and yet you went back to a situation where you were sort of being appraised visually. You know, like your boss would say that you were looking busy. You know, it's back to Taylorism. It's like you, your yeah. boss was saying you looked busy, you were going to get a promotion because you looked like you were working hard. And to some extent, work, maybe against its will, is being dragged from a, a, a model close to school to something closer to college. And I think, you know, for some organisations, they're really, they're really struggling with that. The, you know, the idea at college, you could do your work when, where and when you, when you wanted. Yeah, your yeah, summer yeah, idea yeah. that you could work in the evenings as long as you've got your, your job done. You could, um, you could do it from whatever location you wanted. You were held accountable for the results you achieved, but nothing else. And I think for a lot of organisations, they're really struggling with that, that shift. Well, you have to ask the question of the sort of Jacob Rees-Moggs of the world. If you only know how productive your staff are, by seeing them being present, you're not really measuring their output very mm. effectively at all, are you? You know, if the only way you know people are working is by seeing them at a desk, it's a pretty appalling way of, 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 of measuring how valuable someone is. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, and yeah. I think a lot of people learned serious face mm. during, um, during Zoom calls in the pandemic, right? I need to look like I'm interested while I surf the day's news. Yes, You know, yes. sort of the notion that because you can see someone's face on a video call, they're doing they're work. They're engaged and they're working. No, Total illusion. True. What's your final conclusion, I suppose? But, um, if you take the, the work on resilience, what you've done, I think, is you've added really necessary nuance to it, which is it had become a kind of catch-all term for mm. something, which was, as you said, to some extent, offloading blame and responsibility on people... <laughs> for a problem that was created somewhere else. Um, what, what's your ultimate conclusion on, you know, on what we should do? Should we sort of ban the word? Should we, um, should we get rid of the training courses? Is there a completely different approach we can adopt? But I, I think largely, if organisations or schools, rather than saying, how can we make these people more resilient, uh, or, or, you know, instruct these people. Someone said to me, um, never in the history of calming down has someone calmed down by being told to calm down. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I think, you know, to some extent... Be, saying a, be more resilient be is resilient, exactly the same as saying calm down. Right. It's simply like, something that doesn't It's not going to happen. But yeah. I think if organisations, if schools said, rather than us try and teach people to have these three habits to be more resilient, but if we try to create greater connections between them, make them feel more supported. You see a lot of evidence of this in older victims of heart attacks and depression. People in their sort of 50s who've had uh, these episodes, the biggest predictor of their well-being in three and five years is how many groups they report feeling part of. And I think if we knew that, if we knew that our degree of connectivity into communities in yes. a society that sort of has become completely atomized. You know, we've, we regard it society, especially under the shadow of, of US, you know, economics and influence, we regard ourselves as sort of individualistic enterprises, really, trying to survive on our own. If we, if we were reminded that the degree of connection that we've got was the thing that was most protective of us, I think that's how those courses and those interventions can be massively improved. If you knew that, look, the thing that was going to get you through difficult times was 
how you've built a bridge into, into other, other people. people. Yeah. So that's, for me, that's the, the, the lesson that I've taken away from all of it. Because it was very interesting, there was a very interesting piece written, I think it was in an American magazine, might have been The Atlantic again, uh, where someone basically wrote a piece saying the nuclear family was a mistake. You know, it was a luxury that became possible because people were rich enough not to live with parents and grandparents. But to some extent, it was a bit of an Anglo-Saxon anomaly, the extent to which you right. had those atomized nuclear units, but also saying that in terms of overall well-being, it's, pro you know, it's possibly been a disaster. Mm. I mean, it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I read some research on happiness which suggested that one of the biggest predictors of your happiness was how often you bumped into people you liked without having to plan it beforehand. <laughs> and there was, there's, some, wow. there's also some evidence, which is that people in sort of market town-sized communities are kind of happiest right. because that's exactly what happens. You, know, you have a mm. high street, you wander along the high street, you bump into someone you know. And it, you know, it doesn't require coordination. Mm. It's just a natural part of everyday life. And I, I mean, one, of, one of the things I've, I've increasingly just asked as a question is that every single um, futurist conversation assumes the future is a greater urbanization. Okay? And so, you know, if, if you ever the future of transport, it's all about urban transport. You know, the future of housing, it assumes high density, high rise housing. And actually, I, I'm, I'm genuinely, you know, all, all the happiness evidence, for example, you know, people living in high-density housing have a much higher incidence of schizophrenia and, and mental disorders, higher rate of depression. So it, it, it strikes me as one of these things that's become universally assumed that, you know, we will mm. all be living in cities, cities are economically more productive, so on and so forth. And my only question is, well... Is that, you know, is that actually true? You can actually get, you know, you can get a lot of people, I mean, uh, you can get a lot of people into living in semi-rural or suburban conditions with quite a bit of space with reasonable, you know, lots and lots of, of concentric communities forming mm. uh, in a way that cities in some ways make quite difficult because your workplace becomes, you know, with the decline of organised religion and so forth, your workplace becomes the only gathering place. And that probably isn't, is that enough for most yeah. of us or not? I don't know. I mean, that notion that the that town planners think about now, the 15-minute city mm. of everything that you want is is a 15-minute walk from where you are. Somebody said the 15-minute city is actually a town, isn't right. it? Right, okay. If, <laughs> if we're being a bit cynical about it. But it sounds I, like I, I, only asked the of... I asked the question, because it, it, it always struck me as interesting, that there was a Guardian journalist who was apoplectic because the Eurostar used to stop at Ashford and Ebbsfleet. And he said it was just about reasonable for the Eurostar to stop in Lille because it was a significant enough town. But Ashford and Ebb Street were just ridiculous, you see. And I did actually write to him and say the population of Kent is 1.8 million, the population of Essex is 1.8 million, okay? Actually, you know, I, I, I think there's this weird urban idea that the countryside is actually very, you know, very underpopulated, mm. it's just sparse, and, you know, there are 27 people with, you know, with, with hay sticking out of their hair, you know. <laughs> but actually, you can fit quite a lot of people into, you know, in, in, into, you know, semi-rural settings. And I, 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 just, I just wonder about this, because every assumption, and yet if you look at history, there have been huge periods of flight from cities... You know, the whole point of the railways was yeah. originally that you didn't have to live right in the middle of a city. And, um, 
Uh, and also there's the Georgist argument, which is that actually what happens with concentration is the gains from the economic activity tend to go to the landowner, not to the person performing the activity, which I think happens with our younger yeah. employees. You know, if yeah. you look at our younger employees, you know, we pay them some money, they pay 40% tax on the uh, you know, on the top bit of it, and then of what's left over, 50% goes in transportation and accommodation costs. So, you know, we're not being very effective at mm. paying them by requiring them to live in a really expensive city. Yeah. And um, so, I, you know, I, I, this, you know, it always interests me when things just become completely axiomatic and assumed that the future of humanity is ever higher density spaces. And I'm not sure that, you know, I'm not sure that's how we naturally like to operate. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely in an interesting challenge um, now, just thinking about, you know, if, if you were to look at the usage of resources, yeah. city centres have got this vast redundancy to them now. You know, like if, you say, if we're saying that Fridays are completely unused, I know. Uh, to an extent that they were maybe even more used on Saturdays when people used to come in and, and shop and, and use retail. It's just an interesting way for us to, to rethink that use of resources. You know, city centres, to, to some extent, the, the, broadly the way that you look at commercial property, you'd say that the top end of commercial property will remain, the actual yeah. stores of offices will remain in high demand. But yeah. the middle tier um, is really going to struggle. And, and, you know, that presents big opportunities for us to rethink how we use our cities in a way that I don't think we've even started to do that. And there's a very cynical sort of conspiracy theory, but it possibly bears some consideration, which is the reason certain people in banking and certain people in government are very keen to get people back into the office is that something like 40% of our pensions are invested in commercial real estate. Yeah. I mean, an extraordinary amount of bank lending goes towards commercial real estate. And if you suddenly come to the conclusion that this is actually redundant or technologies mm. essentially rendered it... Uh, it's a you know, 2008 style crash, isn't it? Yeah, it is, a, potential, it yeah. is a massive potential crash yeah. um, on the horizon. Um, in, in, in talking to these wonderful experts, what were the best tips you received, fundamentally? Because some, sometimes I'm always intrigued that you talk to someone who's studied something uh, you know, endlessly. I talked to Daniel Kahneman once and he said, look, I don't really expect behavioural economics to have much effect because our biases and so forth are deeply ingrained, but I do think it might improve the quality of our gossip. In other words, when you, talk, <laughs> when you gossip about other people, you know, you might be able to say, you know, I, I think he was suffering from status quo bias there, right. you know. Um, did you pick up any kind of... It's uh, interesting, though, like, you know, he's a good example, right? That yeah. Him, him and, his, and his research part, partner, when they described their methodology, mm. they described constantly laughing, mm. being in a, a state of sort of constant flow, actually. That, you know, they were, the ability yeah. to bounce ideas off each other and, and sort of almost fill every waking moment that they were working together with um, sort of playful interactions is a really interesting model for how work can feel like yeah. something that's not a burden for us. And, you know, I think there's an interesting lesson there. For a lot of people, they're feeling disconnected from the environments they're in. They maybe don't feel that, you know, that they have a real interest in their organisations. And that loneliness has a toll that, you know, it's very easy to say that we've moved from an environment where work was like school, it was sort of tight, cohesive yeah. environments, and maybe it's good for our society that work isn't our identity. But unless you replace it with something, then you end up with a much more lonely existence. You know, people who 
uh, it's not that work should be the congregation that gives us a sense of meaning and togetherness. You know, it fulfilled that for some people in the past, but maybe it's unhealthy for work to be our identities. But if we substitute the way that we were working before for nothing, then it leads to a much lonelier life. So I think, you know, that's for me a, a real cautionary note. It's very easy. Look, I used to work in technology firms and, and the, yeah. the truth in technology firms is that anytime you're presented with a new innovation, it seems really inspiring. It fills you full of hope. You know, it, it, feels, it feels like it's going to solve so many problems. And repeatedly, time after time, the, after that initial flush of excitement, we suddenly see that, you know, our bias to optimism yes. unfortunately blinded us to the pretty big downsides to the way these things play out. So, you know, we might very easily say, actually, it's good for us to reduce the, the way that work is our identity. But these unexpected consequences of yes. that and isolation and loneliness... Heidi's here, Dr. Heidi, um, who I, I interviewed. And, and I, I spent a lovely day with, um, with Heidi and her team at the Whittington Hospital. And one of the things that um, she, she and her team observed uh, was that the, the pandemic had produced a massive increase in the aggression of patients coming in. And there's something about people being isolated and disconnected that brings out the worst in them. And so, you know, an unexpected consequence of the way that work might be going is that we think, oh, great, people can fill their lives with the stuff that we started the pandemic doing, bread making and hobbies and things that we always dreamed of. And in fact, if, it, if it's filled with... Uh, greater isolation and greater degree of disconnection. It's got big unexpected consequences. So, you know, th those are the things that live in my mind. Yes, because you're right, because I mean, it is to some extent undesirable that people identify uh, through their work to the extent they do, but then you have to ask the question, yes, but what replaces it? Mm, exactly that. It's that old comment about religion. I think it's G.K. Chesterton who said, the trouble with people who stop believing in God is they stop believing in anything. Right. And um, uh, th there, there is that issue which is... Um, uh, it isn't necessarily going to be a particularly pleasant transition. Having said that, I think the nature of work had deteriorated uh, over the 20 or 30 years. I, I mean, you have to be sort of 40 or 45 to notice this. But there was a social component to work in the kind of pre-email, pre-PowerPoint age. Um, there was a social and a physical component to it. I mean, even if it was just sheets of paper, okay. There was something to it which was... Uh, sort of graspable and sociable, which slowly deteriorated, I think, in the 2000s. Mm. And it's, it's very difficult to quantify or explain it. I mean, I always find it really interesting that people who make a fortune in banking, uh, they leave and they immediately start something like a vineyard or a brewery, which is probably just for the pleasure of actually producing a, a physical product. You know, if you spent your entire time tinkering around with numbers on a screen, just the sheer pleasure of, you know, seeing a Do truck something. go out of the factory gates must be actually something. And I think, um, I think, I think the, the atomization question is also interesting. Mm. Yeah, I was, I was just exactly going to segue to questions. Uh, Bruce, do you think, um, because of Brit's reputed stiff upper lip, that resilience is uh, more of a relevance, maybe? Um... Interesting. Uh, so, uh, what it, it's taken hold and it's. Just that stereotype exists, doesn't it? Brits, stiff upper lift, get through it, you know, keep calm and carry on. Right. So, because of all of that that comes with the whole British thing. I mean, it's possibly why we find it so appealing. It was possibly why, sort of, you know, it, there's so many demands for it. 
yeah, you know, look, and it's a very appealing idea, isn't it? The idea that someone who gets knocked down gets back up again. It's the basis of, of a lot of the drama that we watch. It's, you know, it's the basis of all the superhero movies that we, we see, you know, sort of the, the idea that people are able to pick themselves up. I guess we, we probably would style it as British. Um, mm. Whether that's objectively true, I don't know. Oh, I mean, there, there, there is, I mean, there probably is some benefit to that mentality, by the way. Mm. And this is where I think it gets really complicated. Um, you know, there, there are probably circumstances where actually adopting that, you know, slightly sort of pragmatic approach to problems might actually be, you know, beneficial. Mm. Um, might also be beneficial in a group setting, of course. Uh, you know, having one or two people who are, you know, effectively, you know, pretending not to be affected might be actually valuable. Um, but we, um, uh, I think, I th you know, as with, as with, I think, some of the, some of the research you, you mentioned in the book, it's quite often context, highly context dependent, isn't yeah. it? And as you said, for the Lebanese, they were so pissed off with yeah. people effectively, you know, saying, oh, they're so wonderfully resilient. Nobody mentioned the fact that maybe, maybe it'd be quite a lot nicer in Beirut if you didn't have to practice resilience <laughs> to quite the same extent. Yeah. I have a question. Let's see if I can formulate it properly. So often many of the courses you were mentioning, they are given from the top to, to the bottom, right, to the employees and stuff. And one of the things I observed is that many, many times the leadership don't want to change because they feel that they will lose power or control. They don't know what to replace it with. So what would be, what do you think that could be advised to them? So instead of trying to give resilience courses to, to the troops, you now what could um, help them embrace a different way of working or have a, a different view that doesn't put them on the spot? Because often you're speaking, oh yeah, but then if people work from home, they're not really working, how can I control them and stuff? And, you have to address their fears in a way for some change to happen uh, unless you want you know, a total revolution. Yeah, I mean, this notion of, of control, me and Rory were talking about the importance of autonomy and control as a sort of a motivator for people beforehand. Um, yeah, the, the really interesting thing is if you ask most workers their experience of work right now, they would say that they've never had less control. Um, I think something like 70, 75, 78% of, of workers say they don't have any input into any decisions that are made in their organisation. People feel that they exist in a control vacuum. Simultaneously, bosses, generally the reason why they're summoning workers back into the office is because they feel an absence of control when they can't see people. And so, you know, this constant... Um, this sort of tug of war that's going on about people trying to bring some degree of, of control, of agency over what's happening is, is one of the, the battles that are playing out. But you see catastrophic examples of it. Myself and Roy were talking about uh, beforehand, but there's, yeah. there's, um, there's, there's one episode in the book, which is uh, an airline, an issue in an airline in the US where a passenger about three years ago was dragged off a United Airlines flight. And it's got really vivid um, because it's a horrible scene. And the, the post-mortem of that, the, 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 or the, the, the after event of that, uh, and the guy ended up getting, I think, somewhere in the re region of $120 million compensation for it. Um, but the aftermath, it was decided that no one involved had the ability to make a decision to give the passenger more than was allowed in the system. Total they, they needed control. to make space on the plane because they needed to transfer a mm. flight crew from one place to another. 
and three passengers, I think, accepted eight hundred dollars yeah. as a voucher uh, for the inconvenience of taking the following day's flight. The algorithm then picked one person to be forcibly removed, exactly who happened to be a doctor. Now. When human judgment's involved, you go, fair enough, mate, you're a doctor, we'll pick someone else to kick off the plane. You know, you have work to do. Um, uh, uh, you know, there must be some holiday maker or something else who wouldn't necessarily mind an extra day in a hotel. But you're not allowed to make that call because something, either an algorithm or a procedure, has decided it for you. And that extent to which there's a phrase, I think, in, isn't there, in employment, which is you're either above the API or below the API... You're either effectively there designing processes for which you're very well paid, typically, or you're simply, you know, an Amazon warehouse worker, as you mentioned. You, you carry around a slate with you. It tells you exactly what to do and where to be at every time. And the fact that that must be extraordinarily disheartening, you know, fundamentally disheartening to people. Mm. Um, there are extraordinary experiments with dogs. About, you've probably heard this extraordinary experiment about... Uh, effectively autonomy or the sense of control you have over your environment, which involves giving dogs electric shocks. Don't do it at home. But it's the fact that the dog that can turn off the electricity supply uh, doesn't suffer any mental ill effects, particularly, even though it's given regular ele electric shocks. The dog in the adjacent compartment, which shares exactly the same unpleasant electrical stimuli but doesn't have access to the switch, basically lapses into a kind of learned doggy helplessness. And it's, a, it's obviously a pretty hard, I don't suppose you get permission to do that experiment now. But, I mean, it is interesting, which is the, sen the extent to which you give people some reasonable sense of autonomy or freedom of judgment. And that doesn't mean you can't tell people what... Mm. This is one distinction that isn't really well understood. You can still tell staff what to do, just don't tell them how to do it. Mm. And I think that distinction often gets lost, where everybody goes, no, it's not enough to tell staff what to do, we have to actually automate and, and standardise this process so there is a way of doing it. Someone told me that their, um, their daughter was working in Subway and that the, if you work in Subway, you're given a 10% off um, barcode and uh, anytime your friends come in or just a customer you like comes mm. in, you're allowed to give them a discretionary additional 10%. And they said that it just, that ability to give a customer a discount in, in a moment of... Uh, it, it, it just gives them it some sense that their job yeah. has got some agency. Um, you talked about the power of identity as a redemptive element and also resilience as a collective force. I'm just kind of curious around role models or sort of, you know, we're all talking about leadership and things like that, but also sort of if in your research you kind of sort of dug into anything around people that maybe are a little bit further or effectively what good leadership could mean and, and whether there, whether it is all about peer-to-peer -peer collectivism or is there a role for leadership and what that would look like? Yeah, uh, most definitely. I think, you know, firstly, an understanding of these things seems to be really powerful. The reason why I sort of mentioned the identity thing and go into that is that one of the things that's been really helpful for people who've explored adverse childhood experiences is understanding that those things that I talked about, doubling your likelihood of getting lung cancer, doubling your likelihood of, of cancer, of, of heart disease, they aren't necessarily baked into the system, they're propensities. And the, what's been found was that the therapies that help people understand that their experiences are not their, their, their identity in the world are actually incredibly redemptive. It's sort of, um, there's a lot of work showing that people can 
really be at the heart of, of reimagining who they are. So th- that's why I mentioned that. I think just an informed understanding is the most critical part. You know, I, I was really struck during the pandemic, actually, that um, I met two or three organisations who'd created community managers. And I chatted to them, you know, what does a community manager do? And actually, it's only after... And, and I presumed that it was about creating a congregation. It's like making sure that everyone felt that they were part of something. In the old days, if they had a big Monday morning meeting or a Friday afternoon meeting, it was like creating that virtually. And they said, no, far from it. It's about trying to make people find that these little pockets of belonging in the organisation. It's the mums at the organisation. It's the runners at the organisation. And now I understand, I look at that and I think, okay, well, that's, that actually serves a much bigger purpose than what it might have seemed initially. It might have seemed just a, a really simple way to try and make people feel like there were people like them here. But for me now, you recognise that, okay, that serves a role of, you know, the, the way that you become a co- congregation in a secular sense is by feeling that you've got a, a place there and there's people like you there. So I think, you know, for leaders, understanding that uh, does have a, a really critical role for for trying to run organisations in completely unprecedented times, I think. It's interesting, isn't it, that we we need very little in common with people to feel... I mean, mm. you've mentioned some of the experiments, both about in and out group and out group hostility, which, is, which is both kind of a nasty and possibly a necessary uh, function of group formation. But what is interesting is that even, you know, arbitrary or confected... Uh, things that a group have in common can be extraordinarily powerful in forming that group. Uh, Yeah, most definitely, you know, just creating any sense of belonging. And I think it's most essential for organisations thinking, how how can we ensure that people feel like they've got a place here? It, really interesting. And so you can actually, you can create, it, it, it's a kind of fractal thing. You can create mm. lots and lots of communities of interest in the group which bond people together, even, you know, through just one shared interest or something of the kind. Yeah, yeah. I think most definitely go forwards. That's a really critical element. If we see ourselves having a, a more um, semi-detached relationship with our jobs, yes. then organisations that are able to make people feel like there is something special about the relationships I've got here, um, it's going to look very different to the way it looked before, I think. Thank you so much for hosting. Thank, thank, you. thank you for coming. It's a pleasure. Thank you to Rory. Thank you to Radix Big Tent. Uh, thank you to the people who sponsored the popcorn and the drinks in the room as well. These uh, We were hosted in a, uh, a, a legal office in central London. So uh, immensely grateful for all of the support. If you've liked that, like I say, the best thing you can do is sign up to the newsletter and you'll get that at the top of the show notes. I've been Bruce Daisley. Look forward to your company next week. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 